Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Wade Matteson, Practice Leader at Milliman. Wade, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure to be here. I thought I'd start off the podcast on a bit of a controversial note, which is to really have a reflection on the default system of super and, you know, is it still fit for purpose? Yeah, look, I think that's a great place to start. Uh, and I think from sort of two perspectives, um, you know, one is, is just the background of, of where we've come from um, as a business, but two is... Um, effectively how superannuation started. So I think we can't neglect the fact that, you know, without an element of compulsion, um, you know, we wouldn't have this wonderful superannuation system uh, that for, is pretty much the envy of the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, that's, that's decades um, in the making to create this vehicle now um, that gives us the ability to have this debate and decide whether that mechanism is still appropriate. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, kind of segueing into, into where we started in the Australian market over a decade ago with Milliman. Um, you know, we came into Australia focused squarely on how people deploy their superannuation assets and how they use them when it comes to retirement. Um, and so I think that's the challenge is, is this system that has operated and been built on the basis of this default mechanism um, is now at a point where it's maturing uh, and we are seeing large numbers uh, of people and large amounts of assets um, get to this destination point where they actually have to start living their retirement. So superannuation's gone from being this wealth accumulation vehicle um, to now having to deliver on the promise that it's made to its constituents. Um, the complicating factor, I think, which is which is more recent, um, is that superannuation is always subject to regulatory risk and regulatory changes. And as we've seen with, um, you know, this kind of situation around uh, the pandemic and, and shutdown and kind of economic destruction to some extent, um, is superannuation is now also being opened up to assist people meet short-term needs. So people that aren't close to retirement um, that are under financial hardship uh, are now having the ability to access super. So I think... You know, that's an interesting change to the system to recognise that it's part of a, a broader um, kind of philosophical asset um, that can be deployed in certain circumstances to assist people uh, with their short-term financial needs. You know, it, it's, it's fascinating that you know, Super was seen as this retirement pool that you were trying to build, but then suddenly if you get into sort of a problem and the economy is in a, in a downward you know, trajectory, uh, that the gates are open to your superannuation and, and, and you can spend your money. And now, yes, people are in hardship, but there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that I'm seeing of people just taking the taking advantage of, of that opportunity to to withdraw ten or twenty thousand dollars and put it in a in a mortgage offset. You know, and I, I'm worried that you know this system that was supposedly sacrosanct in terms of you know, a pool for your retirement and providing for income is now being seen as a honeypot that you know can be can be raided anytime there's a an economic downturn you know have we set a, a dangerous precedent now in, in terms of this system 
Um, we well, pot- potentially we have, uh, and and it is interesting that you know there are other markets, um, you know, in Asia and elsewhere, uh, where effectively the kind of government you know, saving system allows for deployment of those assets for multiple purposes. Um, I think uh, the interesting um, you know, consideration when you start mentioning that that, that obviously. You know, people be that aren't necessarily in hardship are seeing this as an opportunity to access their funds. Um, really poses another question to me, which is, you know, as an industry, have we done a good job in justifying and communicating the rationale for our existence? You know, do we have a strong connection uh, to our to our customers in the end? Because um, the example, as you said, of people yanking money out for for other purposes, in, in some respects suggests to me that maybe we're not that well connected with our consumers um, and, and what do we need to do um, you know, to do that job better? Uh, and I think that's one of the more interesting uh, sort of philosophical questions that a lot of funds maybe should reflect on and start to think, you know, how can we make ourselves more relevant uh, in, in that sense? Is part is part of that because of you know this default system was just seen as almost asset gathering, you know, just growing as many assets under management as you possibly could, and and that was the big focus, uh, and so member engagement sort of became a secondary issue, and even the retirement piece became a sort of a secondary issue because that wasn't really the focus. Um, yeah, completely, completely, and, and I think the the way I tend to think about this is is if you think about um, you know, superannuation or the industry uh, as this, you know, this kind of evolutionary system, um, then how it naturally evolves will depend largely to some extent on its origin, right? So if you think about where it originated, um, it originated with zero assets and it originated with relatively low um, superannuation guarantee levels and we've increased it over time. So in that um, kind of early phase, that really informative phase that, that set us on a path of how the organisations evolved and changed. Um, it was built around, as you said, you know, asset gathering. Um, and I'd go a step further, it's actually built around not just asset gathering, but asset gathering where the gathering part of the assets wasn't too um, challenging, right? Because it was mandated that the money get got handed over um, on a regular basis just out of people's paychecks. Um, so what's happened is over 20 years that we've gone down this path, we've built these organisational structures that have disproportionately focused on the investing uh, and the management of those assets, not even the gathering part. Um, and so now what's happening is we're seeing the balance of power in some respect shift because um, we've gone past the point where you know the amounts were low and, and people were forced down paths where now choice operates across the system. So people have the ability to choose whether to be with one fund or another, to choose whether to be in a high growth um, investment option or a conservative one, to whether to be in a SMSF or in an industry fund. And so that choice has been there for some time. Um, and now we've got the additional complicating factor where the l- number of people coming and entering into retirement um, is rapidly increasing. So the dynamics changing and the question sort of comes about, um, are we able um, to evolve in this sort of step jump way? So I think of it, you know, I'm a big kind of fan of sort of science fiction and 
superhero movies and so I always sort of think back of, you know, things like the X-Men, right, where we talk about this mutation that takes place and I always sort of speak about, you know, humankind sort of going along for a point and then has this rapid step change in the way that it evolves and mutates. And so that's the question, whether it's an evolution of the superannuation system or whether what we need to see now is this sort of, you know, step change mutation take place where we become much more focused on the liability part of the equation, the outcome part of the equation, um, and less so focused on the asset gathering and, and management part of it. It's funny you say that because, you know, that whole piece around the portfolio design and the construction of, of uh, you know, portfolios that do meet members' outcomes still seems to be very much in the past. There's very few funds that are taking the initiative to do that. But then we're seeing a whole lot of innovation, if you would like to use that word, in terms of internally how funds are trying to, you know, create their own empire with, you know, these internal teams and yep. um, related transactions and so forth. It's like the focus is all on, on that asset gathering piece. And it seems like they're still missing the key issue, which is the backside and the liability um, that they need to manage, which is actually people's retirement yep. income. Yeah. And, 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 and that goes straight to the point you just made is then when people are given the opportunity to, to exit, they take it with both hands, right? So we, we don't see people just deploying money for hardship. We see them saying, well, super isn't relevant to me. I'd rather throw it into my mortgage offset, you know, as you mentioned, um, because it hasn't built that connection. The innovation, um, and I would actually, you know, suggest in some respects here that, you know, our focus on fees and returns um, has meant that we've oversimplified what it is that we do. So ultimately, you know, does the consumer really care about what sits underneath the surface of the headline fee and the headline return. Um, you know, I would argue that they don't. At the end of the day, the consumer cares about, uh, you know, can they go on that ski trip once a year? Can they pay their mortgage down? Can they do any number of other things with their money? Um, how we piece that together and how we deliver that to them um, is, is in the back end, but it's disproportionately where we focus our time and energy. And so... You know, funds that I think go through that step change, what you're going to find is they're going to take a very different tack and decide that the real way that they can gather that loyalty and start to win um, is have better conversations with their customers. Um, and, and by doing that, by engaging them in a better way uh, and, and having more realistic and more personal conversations and solutions – then you make yourself more relevant and people understand why you're there as opposed to this esoteric idea that you're a pot of money that I will dip into when retirement comes around. It's interesting because I know when we've had held our retirement conferences in, you know, in, in the past and, and there's always this big question that super funds just don't understand their member and they, they sort of you know, shrug when you ask them about what data do you have on your members and it's really very basic. You know, is this the chance, you know, in this in this COVID environment where you can actually reach out to your members and try and get more details about their current situation so that you do work towards a more tailored, you know, offering for them and try to understand what their situation is as opposed to these big, broad cohorts that they're managing to? Um, yeah, look, you know, this is... Uh, there's a massive aspect, I think, of this, um, which is the implicit assumption that we've made um, with that statement, Alex, is that the funds are interested in doing that. 
Um, and, 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 and I guess the reason I, I, I sort of say that is, you know, take an example. So for two or three years, we recognise that it doesn't matter how you necessarily put the assets together or whether you build a complex longevity product. If people don't understand what it's for and whether it meets their needs, um, and so some of the work we did is we sort of stepped back and said, well, actually, let's go back and look at how people spend their money in retirement. Because it's a classic example in an industry that's highly, I kind of describe it as it's overweight IQ and probably underweight EQ, is we come up with these really highly technical solutions. We want to try and solve complex problems. Um, but we maybe don't spend as much time as we should understanding the emotional drivers and what motivates people. Um, and so we sought to do that by looking at, you know, spending patterns, right? And, and I could tell you, you know, what the average retiree in Mossman um, spends on dental every year, right? And so that becomes one of the pathways to try and rectify this idea that if I put garbage into a model that then spits out an asset allocation or an investment strategy, then I'm going to get garbage out. The assumptions going in around what we're trying to help people achieve become vitally important. Um, that's information that was available that you know, you know, funds could use, could, could access, but the appetite to delve into that and to explore it and use that over you know, a number of years from our perspective was very, very limited. And instead, what funds have done is you know, they've, kind of benchmark themselves to things like ask for comfortable standards, right? Because it's a simple metric. It's a simple heuristic. Um, unfortunately, when you look at the data, almost no one spends at the ask for comfortable level in retirement. Um, so we set these lofty goals, these lofty ambitions, and then we communicate that, which creates this natural point of disengagement to our customer base because, you know, if our customers aren't operating at the level that we communicate they should, then it doesn't motivate them to save more, to invest more into super. It actually demotivates them because they see these unobtainable objectives and they start to question whether we as an industry truly understand what their needs are, what their lives are like. Um, and so I think it's a question of funds have to be motivated. They have to be willing to accept that some of the basic pillars that we've built some of our approaches on need to be questioned um, and then go about challenging them and, and start to really, you know, throw that through the executive team and the board to try and figure out um, how we get that real um, experience to be closer to reality for our membership. Has the current sort of public offer approach, you know, really start to to confuse the message? Because, you know, alongside the public offer, you, you can see buses yeah. and, and billboards along the way about number one fund, one, three, five years in percentage terms. Um, and so that's, again, yeah. another distraction. Oh, totally, totally. And I, and I think this is the, um, you know, this is, this is partly um, some of the challenges that you face because, you know, we're operating in an area that is highly complicated, right? And so, you know, there's any number of dimensions that can influence the sorts of retirement outcomes that we create. Um, because it is complex, it means that it's, difficult to have a complex and nuanced conversation, right? So what we've done is we've gravitated towards simplifying that as much as possible and we've simplified it by kind of, you know, focusing, honing in on, on fees and returns. Um, so I think it's interesting, the, the sort of public offer nature 
um, sort of throws up sort of two questions for me. So, you know, to go back to where we started, where we talked about um, the rules have changed and all of a sudden people are accessing superannuation in the short term um, for hardship and other purposes. Well, I would suggest, and, and, and actually evidence is that the industry generally is dealing with this very, very well. Um, and that's an outcome of the fact that we do operate a choice system. So people can choose to move funds. They can choose to change investment options. That's been there for some time. So funds, by and large, have had to have the ability to deal with that. Um, but the other part uh, of that challenge is then, as we start to see choices get made, is there an opportunity for funds to leverage that and create simple stories about being fit for purpose um, in the context of if you are someone who is, for instance, um, low socioeconomic group, you're largely dependent on the age pension, then we have a solution that's specific to you. You know, likewise, if you're a high net worth individual, so on and so forth, or mass affluent. So how we have those conversations can be very different. It's less about fees and returns. It's more starting from what does the member need? Um, how is their lifestyle going to be affected by what we do for them? And do we have something that is differentiated? Uh, and that can be through investment options. It can be through um, education or advice. There's any number of ways that funds can ultimately differentiate down those paths. So this raises an interesting question around the retail the retail part, you know, and, and these retail platforms have copped a lot of heat of late just for other sorts of fees and charges. But, you know, they've always had this connected advisor network um, and really trying yep. to understand their members and, and, and then connect up the, the portfolio to, to the actual members' desires and outcomes that they want to achieve. So, you know, should we stop bashing the retail side so much and, and start to really shed the light back on the industry funds to, to try and catch up from that point of view? Oh, completely, completely. And I think this is, you know, it's one of the areas that, that you know, is disappointing, I think. And it just comes, it's part of the baggage, right, that comes with the superannuation system because any system that's been built um, off the back of essentially a political mandate, right, it was, a, it was government mandated, then it's, it's, it's kind of evolved again from its origins to have this political dimension to it. And I, and I think... You know, ultimately, um, it's not about politics. It's about human outcomes. And so rather than try and demonise financial advice um, and, and talk about how bad it is and conflicted and all the rest of it, we have to recognise that there's a large part of advice um, that is immensely powerful um, and actually hugely valuable to consumers. Um, and if I'm a large-scale you know, industry fund, for example, and I have an ambition, which is to provide for my members' retirement, to retain them at the end of this accumulation journey um, and, and help them down their path of living you know, a fruitful and fulfilling retirement, then advice has to be a big part of that. Um, and so what you're going to see is you know, funds will you know, need to figure out um, how they cross that bridge. Um, and we've seen that. You know, take place over the years anyway. Um, the challenge, I guess, I, I kind of see there is um, there's a part of advice that is innately human. And, and so, you know, there's this interesting divide between, you know, how much advice can we generally provide in a light touch, you know, digitally enabled way that is cost effective? Um, and then how do we marry that up to 
you know, kind of face-to-face personal uh, holistic advice. And I think that is a, you know, that's that's an industry-wide issue. It's going to require, you know, government assistance and kind of, you know, changes to various policies. Um, and it's going to require appetite by funds to go down those paths. And, the, and, and part of the challenge as funds that haven't historically um, built that capability out is what you will see is if they start to get into that um, capability, then fees and costs um, will have to change to reflect that, right? Because the broader our businesses get, um, the more we're investing time and energy in providing a wider range of services, uh, and a simple commoditized asset management business um, is going to look very, very different when you're starting to talk about delivering, you know, digital advice, guidance, um, you know, telephone sort of contact, um, all the way through to personal advice offerings. Well, that's the, the really million-dollar question for a lot of the industry funds where the, you know, there, there is such a strong focus on fees and a number of the funds are trying to sort of you know, raise the management fee a little bit so that they can use some of that fee to cover for, for advice and so forth. But ultimately, there needs to be some sort of a more of a government change in terms of the, the ability of these funds to, to charge fees for, for advice um, and actually be able to get it out on scale. And I think the other big problem that a lot of these super funds have is they just don't have a balance sheet to be able to, to do a lot of these innovations. So, you know, I think they might be using that as their excuse to a large part, but, you know, should, should super funds be working together to, to lobby the government in terms of more flexibility there? Um, yeah, I think so. Look, look, plenty of change needs to take place uh, when it comes to how we interact with our, our membership. And, and, and even, you know, in a simple um, kind of way, if you want to uh, look at the intersection between products and advice, uh, because one of the things, again, we've talked about a lot is if you look at, you know, number, you know, pretty much across the industry, right, uh, the vast majority of funds are still operating on the basis where the vast, you know, bulk of their membership goes into a default offer. Right, and that default offer, by and large, um, doesn't have many factors that are taken into consideration that change the investment uh, strategy or the asset allocation based on uh, individually identifiable needs. You know, down to sort of cohort levels. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at that, um, the first question you ask is, well, why is that the case? Uh, and some will say, well, it's a scale issue. Um, but you know. I think that argument becomes self-defeating very, very quickly when you look at the size of some of these funds um, and how much they have in their default offers, which amounts, you know, in some cases, you know, in the tens of billions of dollars and higher. And and part of the challenge with that is the simple collection of four or five interesting pieces of data, of information from someone when they sign up to a fund may be enough for me to create a somewhat personalised um, and tailored strategy for them. But part of the challenge of this and where it intersects with the advice framework is what happens when I then get thrown into this personal advice regime because I've now asked someone specific information about themselves that now means that technically I've gone beyond uh, you know, sort of basic general advice principles and I've moved into this more personal advice world. Um, so I think there's elements of that uh, in particular where funds you know, and others can be working with the government to try and create a more effective means 
of allowing us to create better tailored options for people and and to try and bridge um, you know some of these advice you know categorizations uh, without having to go to this very expensive you know high maintenance sort of personal advice model um, and by doing that offer up better solutions to our membership at a at a first level you know when you think about some of these cohorts these cohorts at a particular fund you know some of these industry funds that that cohort can be from people who are 18 years of age until 60 years of age are sitting in that same cohort or that default you know my super product you know that could be just one yep. one minor change in terms of where are they and actually does the default actually make sense for that particular person um and, and the way that some of these industry funds are being created around, you know, a sector, whether it's hospitality like Host Plus or, um, you know, Mind Super or Meat Industry Super, like they've got a particular cohort, but that, that, that cohort is a median and, and doesn't represent the average age. So I think there's there's a quick, you know, calculation that probably needs to be made in terms of, okay, does that default option, you know, is that too low risk for you because you're only 18 or you're 19 years of age? Um that, you know, that yeah, that could be a, you, a minor you, start. Oh, look, you're spot on, um, and and this I think is one of the issues that hasn't had the attention that it needs to have, particularly through the recent crisis. Um, and and it is also the conflation of this choice model with the default model, because you know, as you pointed out, there are funds out there that. Uh, have operated at the more aggressive end of you know the categorization and for completely justifiable reasons that that their membership is younger on average, lower account balance, less affluent, so they get more bang for their buck by investing aggressively. But the issue, as I see, is there is no warning label on that fund when someone who is 63 with two years of to, re- of, to retirement comes in because they're chasing, you know, the returns that have been published in league tables, if that's the case. And then all of a sudden the risk manifests itself and that aggressive kind of investment option has huge downside to it, right? Um, and so the question then becomes, you know, who is responsible for that? Uh, and, and where does the fund's responsibility lie to take a more granular segmentation of their membership and make sure that people as they default in are invested accordingly. And it gets more complex just to sort of flesh that out uh, a little bit further because if we talk about retirement outcomes, age is one massive factor, um, but basic affluence is also important. And the reason for that is just the way that social security and the age pension works in Australia. So because it's means tested, you know, ironically, if you are in the taper zone, for instance, uh, and we did research on this recently, uh, then a fall to your assets because the age pension entitlement is means tested you know, on income and assets. But if you look at the asset part of the equation, a fall in assets will give you a boost in age pension. So there's an argument there to say, well, actually, if I'm in that taper zone, then potentially I can be more aggressively invested because we've got this natural insulation from a market correction because of where I sit. Um, if I'm outside the taper zone and I'm more self-funded, then the risk dynamics for me might be very, very different. And if I'm 100% reliant on the age pension, um, then how does that, you know, get taken into consideration? Because effectively, it's a it's a long-term, you know, government-guaranteed coupon-paying bond. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, giving thought to those dynamics and, and how that impacts in investment decision making um, is much more holistic in nature. It's not just looking at how I allocate my balance fund across, you know, growth and defensive assets now. It's taking into consideration assets outside of super um, that people may or may not have access to. Can I be a bit more controversial on the on that taper zone and the age pension that it's actually creating moral hazard? Is that a fair comment? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, and it, well, it's not, and it's not just, it's not just the age pension. It's um, a whole range of things. I think you know potentially create moral hazard. So, um, you know, one of the things you know, having focused on retirement for many years, uh, is is the challenge I kind of see is is the you know, and we've worked on. Uh, a ton of longevity products um, and I'm yet to find one that's been successful. However, the industry as a whole is still fixated on this notion of longevity um, and you kind of look at it and you go, well, I understand the need to make sure that people can extract income from their superannuation assets and, and you know, fund their retirement as long as they live. Um, but obviously the age pension then creates an issue. But government policy hasn't you know, sort of force people to have to deal with this either. So the the moral hazard that we're talking about that um, comes about from how we invest because the age pension has a taper zone. Well, the same thing exists in the fact that the government removed the need for people to only be able to draw down a maximum amount from their superannuation assets years ago. Right. So we still have minimum mandated withdrawals that come out, but there used to be maximums. So when that got removed, now there's additional moral hazards because it's not just how I invest. Actually, I can actually take it all out in lump sums, go and spend it, um, and spend in a way that uh, you know is detrimental to you know the broader society dynamics of age pension and and the government finances, um, and the government lets that happen. Right? So, so solving these problems needs to be you know thought about from a policy perspective, and and we can do certain amounts through product design as well to try and encourage people um, to behave. Uh, in a more sensible way, um, you know, as they look to consume their retirement savings. That 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 comment about the maximum, I think, is really critical because, particularly as every asset owner that I speak to you know, of late keeps talking about this lower for longer in terms of interest rates and in terms of returns, you know, the ability to earn you know a thirty thousand uh, dollar risk free return effectively in this market is very difficult. You need you know, let's say a million dollars to generate that, but you can you can get that as an outcome from your pension. So that's that's been one of the 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 key issues for me that that's always struck me about the pension is that the pension is there as a social safety net, but at the same time, um, it, it creates a situation where, well, okay, you can take risk in your super or withdraw it and and spend it all on your house, for example, yeah. um, and you've yeah. got this backup. Yeah, yeah, completely. Like, and 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 I think this is where some of the nuance comes in um, to retirement in gen- in general. And 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 look, I should say on the lump sum behaviour, there has been pl- there have been plenty of studies that have actually demonstrated that by and large, people when they get to retirement, um, you know, are sensible with their retirement savings, and they don't just take it all and blow it. But but the interesting thing is, you know, again coming back to that kind of longevity conversation where. As an industry, and you know, and we're an actuarial firm, right? So, so actuaries in particular, we're fixated on on lifetime income. But if I'm retiring with seventy thousand um, dollars, then why do I need to make that seventy thousand dollars last a lifetime? 
right? So, so a completely sensible approach may be, I'm going to enjoy the next 10 or 15 years of retirement and then I'll go on to 100% age pension. So we've got to be aware that not everybody has the ambition um, or the means with which to make their superannuation savings last forever. Um, and it's about how they maximise you know, their lifestyle and their utility um, over the years that matter to them. Um, and, and the age pension has to be part of that. And for certain groups, it will be uh, a massive part. Um, for other groups, we need to do what we can to, to you know, reduce their reliance upon it because ultimately, you know, it goes back again to broader government finances and, you know, who's going to bear the cost of this? And it's going to be ultimately a, you know, a generational inequity if we have, you know, a ton of people relying on the age pension because they have invested poorly or they behaved badly um, and younger generations are going to have to pay the bill for this. And, and at the extreme, what happens is the age pension in its current form can't continue because it ceases to be economical. That's a fantastic place to, to leave it, Wade. Thank you very much for your time today. No, thanks for having me. Uh, it was really enjoyable. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.